We're going to be looking at the second psalm this morning. Thank you for praise, the praise team for leading us in worship this morning, uh, preparing us for worship and the preaching of God's word. And thank you, Dr. Greenway, for inviting me here. It's a, an honor. It's very humbling to be here. First time I've been to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We've been hearing wonderful things and happy third anniversary. Uh, three extraordinarily fruitful and faithful years of ministry and leadership here. And of course, it's not a surprise. I, as he said, we were in class together and we all knew uh, that the ceiling was high uh, for Dr. Greenway at the time. And uh, he continues to uh, raise that ceiling. And in fact, one of the great encouragements for me uh, in, uh, as, as a pastor, uh, you see a lot going on on the, on the uh, social media, and you would think that the Southern Baptist Convention is in a lot of trouble. I don't think uh, social media is, is reality. Um, but when I hear that churches are breaking records and giving to Lottie Moon, and, and I know that we're going to see great things with Annie Armstrong coming up, and then I look at our seminaries. Uh, I, I believe that collectively our seminaries are at the best place they've ever been, and that's because of our presidents. We have remarkable presidents that God has raised up, and Dr. Greenway being one of those, remarkable deans, remarkable professors. Uh, I just think that the future for the Southern Baptist Convention is very bright uh, as we continue to produce students, uh, men and women of God, who are going to go into our churches and be game changers. And that's where reality lies, not on social media. And so I'm very grateful uh, and excited to see what God is doing here. It's a beautiful campus, and it's so wonderful to see old friends here as well. So what a blessing. Thank you for inviting me. Well, if you would pray with me, and we will get into our text this morning. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. Uh, we pray now that you would incline our hearts towards your word. Uh, you would open our eyes to behold your glory in the face of your Son and by the Spirit of your Son. We pray you would unite our hearts to fear your name this morning, and we pray that you would satisfy us with your loving kindness that we know supremely through Jesus Christ in his person and through his all-sufficient work for us and our salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, to get to the essence of our passage, if you would look with me, we're going to be looking at the entire passage. In verses 10 to 12, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, this is not a text that I would normally choose for a chapel service, but given the events in Eastern Europe, I felt like the promises that we see in this passage would be encouraging uh, for God's people uh, on this uh, chapel morning. Now, last week, I was speaking to a young fellow who goes to our church, but I was surprised to see him, to be honest, uh, he is a student at the Naval Academy. He plays football there. In the middle of the semester, I saw him at a ball game in Auburn. 
His name's David. And I said, what, what are you doing here? So I took leave. The, uh, the Navy has allowed me to take some leave. I said, why? He said, well, my grandmother uh, has been called in. Uh, her hospice has been called in to her because she only has a few hours left. Um, and so they gave him time to go home and say goodbye to his grandmother. Well, I saw his father a week later, just uh, this weekend, and I asked how the grandmother was doing. She, he said, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, when, when she heard that her grandsons were coming home to see her, she turned the corner. And so instead of calling in hospice, they now have her in rehab. You know, promises are powerful. And she was now recovering, in a sense, because of the promise of seeing her grandsons again. Depending on the one who has made the promise and, and what has been promised, um, that can be the fuel that one needs to spark hope in what is apparently a hopeless situation. And in Psalm 2, we see such a promise for us. Um, this psalm gives and historically has given the people of God hope no matter the rumblings of earthly governments. It has been extraordinary hope for God's people. Um, and, and for the psalmist to do this, and we know from Acts 4 that the psalmist is David, he begins with a question. Uh, but it's not a question where he is seeking to gain information. He, he's not seeking an explanation. He's actually making an exclamation. And so in verse 1, he asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, to get the most out of Psalm 2, we need to recognize that really Psalm 1 and 2 have to be read together. Uh, it's, they are intentional. They are, it's, it's intentional that they be read together. Uh, and essentially, they are the beginning of the Psalter. They are the, the table of contents uh, to the Psalter. And it's important that we see that. Now, why do we say that these two are to be read together? First of all, there's key repetitions. Psalm 1, for instance, begins with a beatitude. Blessed is the man. And then the last line of Psalm 2 is a beatitude. Blessed are those or all who take refuge in him. Uh, in fact, they both have similar endings. Um, at the end of chapter 1, the way of the wicked will perish. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, they use the language, he uses the language of perish in the way. Now, importantly, Psalm 1, as you well know, describes the righteous one um, who, who lives the blessed life in a world opposed, in a world of wicked scoffers. So how can this blessed one, this righteous one, live this kind of blessed life in a world of scoffers and sinners? Well, Psalm 2 explains that. Psalm 2 answers that. So right at the beginning of the Psalter, at the beginning of the Psalms, we learn that no matter how it may appear in human history, whatever it may look right now to God's people, 
We are blessed. We are blessed. There's one more connection I think it's important to point out here as we read verse 1. Psalm 1 speaks of the righteous man who meditates on the law of God night and day. Well, I want you to notice here in verse 1, the people's plot in vain. That word plot is the same Hebrew word for meditate. The English just changes the the translation or changes the word there. So in chapter 1, the righteous meditate on the law of God. And here in verse 1 of chapter 2, the nations rage and these people, they plot. They meditate in vain. And so the connection is, is very clear. And so while the mind of the righteous are meditating on the word of God, and that is how a righteous one is to be described. The minds of the natural men is a buzz with vain plotting. Incidentally, uh, what you meditate on always goes public. Always remember that when you're on social media. What you are meditating on always goes public. It always bears fruit. Now, in verses 2 to 3... Um, these enemies of God speak, and in their words, we see the fruit of their plotting. Notice with me in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, notice, and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so these are all the powers of history who all have a common enemy. Who is that common enemy, whether they are aware of it or not? It is Yahweh and his Messiah, his Christ, his anointed one. In other words, long before the eschatological Messiah came, the Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist David was describing circumstances that would run throughout history. They are against the Lord. Now, originally, uh, these king's enemy was David and all of his sons who would sit enthroned in Israel. Um, But ultimately, this points us to the greater son the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that from Acts 4. In Acts 4, Peter and John were preaching the gospel of Christ. Uh, They were arrested. They were threatened. If they didn't shut up, that they were going to be put to death. And and because these enemies, um, these officials, knew there was no way to punish them without an outcry from the crowds, they released them. And so they came back to the church, and and the church immediately lifted up their voices to the Lord, and here's what they prayed in chapter 4, verse 24 of Acts. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
And so the psalmist David here is saying at the very beginning of the, of the Psalter, everything else you're going to read in the Psalter, all the plots, all the conspiracies that are directed towards the people of God, know this, behind it all, whether these enemies are aware of it or not, there is a global conspiracy against Yahweh and against his Christ, against his Messiah. And in verse 3, uh, they tell us what they want to do. They do not want restraints. They do not want boundaries. They want to be God. They want autonomy from God himself. We know that because notice there's a cl clear link here um, where he says bonds and cords that they're seeking to burst and cast away. Well, those very words, bonds and cords, are found in Hosea 11, where the Lord, speaking of his tender love for Israel, says this, I led them with cords of kindness, the very word used here, and with the bonds of love. Same words. In other words, what God used, these, these boundaries, these, this word, this, this law that he used to demonstrate his care for his image bearers, natural man interprets as bonds and cords to be broken. But understand this, rebels to the Lord never have the last word. And that brings us to verses four to six. Four to six. We've seen the enemies of the Lord speak, and now Yahweh himself speaks in verse four. And I love this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. All your plotting, all your conspiracies against me and my Messiah and my people for that matter. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know, it's interesting that um, what we see in verses two to three, all this, the fruit of, of vain meditation, vain plotting, what is the fruit of that? Agitation, rage. That's the fruit of vain meditations. Here in verse four, we see serenity. There's no conspiracies. There's no plotting. There's no scheming. Um, the Lord is not threatened by any rebellion. Um, he's enthroned. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He sits above all conspiracies. He sits above all desires for autonomy. That's true today. That's true in Russia. That is true in the Ukraine. That's true in all of history. And in his laughter, he holds them in derision. Uh, and, and I find great comfort in this. You know, uh, sometimes when I'm flying, and I fly a lot, as Dr. Greenway flies more than I do, um, I don't like flying, and, and I don't like turbulence. And, and so when I go through turbulence, as I did yesterday, um, I look at the airline attendants. And if the airline attendants are smiling and laughing, I'm okay. Um, and, you know, that comforts me in some really weird way. Even though I, I had one airline attendant tell me who went to our church in Louisville, she says, we have to fake it. 
Uh, we, we can't act like we're scared ourselves, but the, he, the dirty secret is we get scared ourselves. But I look at them, and I think that's what the psalmist is saying. If you are concerned about what's going on with these wicked, rebellious kings, look to the heavens. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not concerned at all. Um, and, and notice in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so the enemies of the Lord, uh, these maverick kings of the earth, they never have the last word. Remember that when you turn on the news. They never have the last word. Why? Because the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, has been enthroned. He sits enthroned. And while they're doing all of their vain plotting, he's already defeated them. It's like a chicken. If I grew up on a farm, and, and, and we would cut the head off of a chicken, and that body would run around because the body didn't know it was dead. But it was dead all along. Um, case in point, the most notorious Roman emperor in history was evidently Diocletian. He ruled during what historians call the Great Tribulation, or the Great Persecution in church history, around 303 to 312 A.D., um, really from 200 to 312, you had empire-wide uh, persecution, but from 303 to 312, to be a Christian was the most dangerous thing in the world. And um, his campaign basically was to stamp out Christianity. And uh, he issued a series of four edicts towards that end. And he extended his empire west into, into Spain where he built two monuments and on one of those monuments, here's what it reads. Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians. And then the second monument said, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. And all the while those, those monuments are being built, Christianity was growing and growing and eventually would triumph over Caesar's throne. William Plummer uh, was a great scholar and pastor and author and, 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 and historian and one of Princeton's prized students. He wrote this uh, at the end of the 19th century, speaking of these Roman um, Caesars. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces and others in high office, who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in miserable captivity. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases. Eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoner. And among these were Julian, 
the apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, and he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it in the air, he said, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. Uh, That's Roman history, but it's also world history. And so it will be until the end. Indeed, that brings us to the anointed one who now speaks. So the enemies of the Lord have spoken, the Lord has spoken, and now the anointed one himself speaks in verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. So this is a decree. It's not something that might happen. It's something that will happen. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, the today here is the day of the son's coronation. Now, that title, the son, was originally given to Adam. He blew it. It was then entrusted to Israel as the macro Adam. They blew it. And then it was entrusted to the kings uh, from David's throne. They blew it. Uh, This son is none other than the son of God himself. All of these other sons were mere shadows. Jesus is the substance. And, And this is not referring to his eternal sonship, where he's eternally generated of the Father. This is speaking of his royal sonship as the son of David. And and Paul tells us in his first recorded sermon in Acts 13 that this day happened in the day of his resurrection. Listen to Acts 13, Paul Paul preaches his first sermon. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do you get that? All the promises made to the fathers, he has fulfilled in the resurrection of the Son of God. And also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so this is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And as the royal son, the Lord invites the son to request something. That just reminds us of how important prayer is when when he's even calling the son of God to pray. Look with me in verse eight. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Or maybe your translation reads inheritance. And the ends of the earth, your possession. Now, don't miss this. Inheriting the nations reflects the fact that these very nations who are plotting against Yahweh and his anointed, that plot will prove to be vain and fruitless. These nations are the son of God's inheritance. And we know when the, when the spirit was poured out on the nations... At Pentecost, uh, when the nations heard the gospel of Jesus crucified and raised from the grave and thousands were, was converted, this was the beginning 
and indeed the extension of this answer to this request as the kingdom of Christ extends to the ends of the earth. But those who refuse that gospel, those who refuse and continue to resist and plot, notice verse 9 is their destiny. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that is a, a tough, tough word for us. But what this tells us is that those who refuse to repent and comply with the Son of God's wishes that the nations would be their inheritance, this is their destiny. Uh, in fact, this word rod, it's the same word in Hebrew that was used in Genesis 49 when Jacob tells his son Judah, the scepter will not depart from you until you have the obedience of the nations. Isn't that hopeful? In fact, this very verse, verse 9, is picked up in Revelation 12 and Revelation 19 to speak of the Son of God's victory over the enemies of God. What's even remarkable, more remarkable, that, uh, is that in chapter 2, verse 29 of Revelation, it's the church's victory over these enemies of God because of our union in Jesus. And that's true for those in Eastern Europe, even now, the Ukraine, believers who are under this siege, they ultimately will be more than conquerors. And so think about Vladimir Putin here. Um, he, he intends really uh, to be the successor of, of Ivan the Terrible from the 16th century and, and Joseph Stalin from the, the 20th century. Joseph Stalin 2.0, that is his goal. And he wants to bring down the West in doing. And he has nuclear weapons on top of that. But if he continues to resist, if he continues to plot, this is his destiny. Now, this is Missions Week, right? It is not completely apparent here, but in this passage, this should impact our understanding of the Great Commission. Why? Because the Son of God has been enthroned. And so verse 6 has been fulfilled, and yet this promise of breaking them with a rod of iron has not happened yet. Judgment is still to come. So that tells us that we who've experienced the saving grace of God in this son must now take this gospel of the son to these nations who, if they do not repent, will be broken with a rod of iron, will be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, that brings us to the final point of this passage. Um, we've seen the enemies of the Lord speak. Uh, we've seen the Lord himself speak. We've seen this son, this Messiah speak. And now, at the end of this passage, verses 10 to 12, David, the poet, preacher, gives us the final word. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Now, what's interesting, David is king as he writes this, but he knows 
He knows. Psalm 110 tells us this. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for you. He knows he's not the eschatological king. He knows there's one who's coming. That was the promise made in 2 Samuel, wasn't it? When he made covenant. God made covenant with David. There's one who's coming. And he says, in light of that, you need to be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So is he, who's he addressing here? He's addressing these kings. He, he's addressing these enemies who are plotting in vain. And he is saying this is the only wise course. There is no refuge from him in that day, but there will be refuge in him if you will kiss him if you will embrace him by faith. Where do you hide from the wrath of this son in the son? Who will take the wrath ultimately at the cross? For those who trust in him, for those who take refuge in him, for those who kiss him, the wrath is satisfied in him. And that's why his refuge is a place of safety. And this is the only hope for the nations. You know that. There is a, a strong play, a place for military um, you know, service and uh, military work uh, in these nations. Um, but ultimately, this is the only hope for the nations. We have that hope. And that's why the Great Commission is so emphasized at this wonderful seminary. And so even though there is a time for just war, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 8, where you say, I need ammunition, not a ride. The most effective thing we can do is that we live in this promise, that we speak this promise to those in our sphere of influence, and we reflect that promise by the way we conduct ourselves, even on social media, we pray for kings and presidents and those in high positions that the Ukrainians and even the Russian people may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified. Uh, we pray that Vladimir Putin would kiss the sun. Is he beyond the saving grace of God? Certainly not. God saved the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul. He can save Vladimir Putin. Let's pray that this tyrant would kiss the son, that God the Spirit would open his eyes to the beauty and the glory, the sufficiency and the necessity of Jesus the Messiah, but if not, that this son of God would break him with an iron, a rod of iron. Let's pray that all the Ukrainians and Russians would find their refuge in this exalted son. Let's pray that and pray for our churches as we did this morning, Dr. Greenway, in the Ukraine. 
Let's pray for the churches in Russia. Let's pray for our missionaries that the Lord would use this evil and terrible event to open doors for the gospel. Think about this as we close. If God can take the most wicked event in the history of the world, and it's not the invasion of Ukraine, as wicked as that is. The most wicked event in the history of the world is the cross. If he can take the most wicked event in the history of the world and turn it on its head by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he can take this wicked event and turn it on its head so that the nations might be glad in Jesus Christ. That is the hope for God's people.